0: Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. We are. I'm glad you're here with us. This is a great Sunday to, to be here. We are starting a, a, a book study that we are going to do from now till Easter. Uh, we are looking at the book of Ephesians, which was one of the favorite churches Paul ever planted. And, and what we're going to do is, is we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and, and really dive into this book this spring. Um, so, winter's here, huh? It, it sounds like it's here, and it sounds like it's getting colder by the second. So, I hope that you guys have all uh, remembered and settled into the reality of being a Michigander this time of year. Thank you guys for getting to church. And, um, you know, it's funny. I, I even think when you think of the term Michigander, there's some pride with that term, right? Like, there's some identity there. Like, we are tough people that can withstand a lot of cold and a lot of snow. We're not like those soft southerners, right? Um, Identity is a big deal, and and Paul in Ephesians, he is writing all about identity and purpose, especially in Ephesians 1, where where we're looking. And I just wanna give you the big idea to kinda let you know where we're going, it's this. We're gonna answer a big question this morning, and it's this, is your identity disconnected from your purpose? Is your identity disconnected from your purpose? The questions of identity and purpose these are fundamental questions all of us wrestle with who am i what's my purpose why am i here on earth what am i good at what do i do and in fact i think a proof of this is um think about the milestones that we tend to celebrate in our life i think they both have to do with our identity and our purpose right i think about high school graduation right it's like all right i was a student i was a high schooler my goal in life, my role in life, my purpose was to get educated, and now that's done. And maybe I'm off to college or secondary education, or maybe I'm entering the workforce, but my identity has changed. I'm no longer a high schooler, and my purpose has changed. I'm moving on to that next step. I think about marriage, right? Your identity changes. You're not single anymore. You're married and also kind of the purpose of your life changes. I don't just think about me anymore. I've got a family to take care of and I'm sharing my life with another person. Both identity and purpose changes. I think retirement is a massive one, right? When for 40, 50 years, you have been something. It gives your life an identity or a purpose. I was a doctor, I was a dentist, I was a chef, and, and now it's like, well, I'm not working, and that can bring up questions of like, okay, okay what, what is my thing now? Identity and purpose are very, very close. And I, I, I would imagine if I were to ask you, how do you describe yourself? You would describe yourself in a way that shows both who you are and your purpose. Like I would say, well, I'm a dad, right? So that means that my identity is a father and my purpose is I've got kids that I parent and I take care of. I would describe myself as a pastor. That means that I work at a church and I preach on Sunday and this is what I've given my life to. There's purpose involved when we talk about what we do for a living. Well, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul's really pressing into why, who are we and why are we that way. Look at verse one says this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's just kind of a standard greeting he gives. He says, grace to you and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so church, before we get into the issue of identity and purpose, um, we need, need to deal with something really important. And the first point in your notes is this, we need to be cool with letting God be God. This is how Paul starts his message. And what I mean by that is, whenever you preach a passage, one of my jobs is, I need to look and I need to ask the question, does this passage present any major theological issues? and Ephesians 1 presents probably the biggest argument in the history of the church. Look again at verse 4. It says this. It says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption." The issue of how God saves people or how people get saved has been the biggest debate in the history of the church. It's been going on for thousands of years. Christians still vehemently disagree about this issue. And help, let me help explain it to you. There, there's one camp that is the reformers They believe in the doctrine of election or that that god is the one who chooses he is the one who moves towards us in the act of salvation that he called us before the foundation of the world that that he is the one who chooses that god is the vehicle by which we are saved that is the reformers that it would calvinism would be in that it is the doctrine of election and predestination the other camp is free will or Arminianism. And what they believe is, is that God, through Christ, He's made an offer to the entire world that anyone would be saved. And it's our responsibility as humans to either accept that invitation or reject it. That God gives an offer to everyone, and it is on us to choose whether or not we want to be invited in to this salvation plan. And Ephesians 1 speaks directly into this debate. Look at it again. It says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Now, sincerely, without trying to be an offense to people who would disagree with me, I really struggle with the idea that you can read Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 honestly, and come away with the conclusion that God doesn't choose us or predestines us. It seems very, very clear in the text, doesn't it? That, that, listen, that God, before we were alive, before the world was created, in his sovereign authority and power chose to save us. And here's why I think people really, really struggle with the issue of predestination, um, because it takes away any control on our part, right? Like, can I be completely honest with you? If I could choose which plan I would prefer, I would choose free will all day. Like, if it were up to me, I'd be like, all right, is, like, I, when I think of my kids, I'm like, I want them to be able to, to choose. So if I just parent them well enough, and if I show them Christ, and, and if I can convince them to follow Jesus, I can have some certainty that, that I can have control over their salvation. I like the idea of me getting to choose because it gives me a sense of control. Predestination makes me trust my kids to the Lord. It removes my control and it makes me live with the reality that I can do everything right. And my kids might not follow the Lord someday. You know, it's interesting, um, even after the service at the five o'clock, someone came up and they're like, Cal, I I see it in the text, I hear what you're saying, but I just really hate this idea. And um, they said, so what are you saying? So basically you're saying that nothing we do matters? Like, like that's a big um, attack against predestination or election. So you're saying that like if nothing we do matters. Why even pray? Why even do anything? God's just playing some sick cosmic game of math and, and he's already decided. Well, listen to me, that's not what I'm saying because the funny thing is, is the Bible makes it very, very clear that God hears our prayers, that he leans in. We see all over scripture People can move the heart of God through their prayer. So here's what I'm saying. There's absolutely mystery involved in how God responds to us and how that works with his sovereign plans being accomplished. But here's what I need you to hear. Um, One of the greatest lessons we can learn in life is we have to be cool with allowing God to be God. Kent Hughes says it way better than I could. He says this. He says, The doctrine of election is a divine revelation not a human speculation. It was not dreamed up by Martin Luther or John Calvin or St. Augustine or by the Apostle Paul, for that matter. It is not to be set aside as the imagination of some overactive religious minds, but rather humbly accepted as revelation from God. We must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen him if he did not first choose us. The doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. It is a doctrine that lets God be God. And here's what I would say. Again, I think you can sincerely love Jesus and disagree on this issue. One of the lessons that I'm learning is Um, I don't want to ascribe to a religion that I can fully understand and explain and be completely comfortable with because that's making me God. His ways are higher than ours. The doctrine of election and predestination makes us actually trust that in a practical way. So here's the question. What have we been predestined to in Christ? That's what Paul's going to get into next. And what we're going to see here is seven realities of our identity in Christ. Here's the first. Um, We are citizens of heaven. In Christ, you and I, our citizenship, our identity is in heaven. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul starts by saying, We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, Well, what does that mean? That seems very vague. And here's what Paul's doing. Right from the beginning of his letter, he's encouraging the Ephesians... Get your eyes off of your circumstances, get them vertical. Remember who you are, remember who you belong to. You are citizens of heaven, and you've been given every spiritual blessing there. And here's why Paul says that, and this is hard for us as Americans to relate to. You see, in Ephesus, to be a Christian meant persecution. Everywhere where Paul planted churches in the Roman Empire, Christians were met with hostility. You remember last week, my dad was preaching and he said all of the town of Ephesus gathered in the amphitheater and they were cursing the Christians and they were praising the God Artemis, the God of the Ephesians. And what Paul is saying is, is, listen, even though life is difficult for you here now, Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven today and you are a part of his kingdom. Your citizenship is in heaven. He gives this same encouragement to the Philippians. In Philippians 3, he says this. He says, But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. And he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. You see, Paul liked to view life like this, that Jesus is in heaven, ruling and reigning, and that is our true home, that is where we live, and we are waiting for the day where he reconciles our reality on earth here to the true and present reality where Jesus is ruling and reigning. And he's saying, listen, in seasons of difficulty in life, don't lose hope, don't forget who you are, don't forget where home is. We are citizens in heaven, and that's an encouragement to us 2,000 years later, isn't it? Okay, here's the next thing we are in Christ. Um, We are seen. We are seen. Look at verse 4. It says this. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. One of the things I love about the gospel is that God is intimately involved and cares about us, you and me, individually. He knows our name. He is present in our lives. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And you know what's interesting? There's three kind of ways to think about God. One is atheism, that God doesn't exist, everything's random, all of it's nonsense. There's the Christian worldview that says, no, that God is creator, he's sovereign, he's involved, he's our savior, he loves us, he's very, very near to us. And then the third is this idea of agnosticism, where there is a God, but he's not near. He's not close. He's kind of doing his own thing. He might have started things, but he's not engaged anymore. He's leaving things to our own devices. And and, and honestly, I think that might be the most depressing of the three worldviews. Like imagine knowing there was a creator and there was no way to have relationship with him. Imagine knowing that there was a God and he didn't care about you at all. You see, the Christian worldview rejects that and says, no, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen, known, and loved by God, and he promises never to leave you or forsake you. I don't know what you're going through in your life right now, but God sees and he cares. Third thing we see is that God is we are in the family in Christ. Because of Christ, we are in the family. You see it right in verse 5. It says this, it says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right, it says, in love, so God moves towards us in love. He's not just playing some cosmic math game, but says, in love, because he loves us, because he cares about us, he predestines us for adoption. We are part of the family of God. in church, here's what I'm going to say. I'm not going to talk about this aspect too much because just a couple weeks ago, if you remember, I did a whole message on what it means, the fact that God is our Heavenly Father. It was in our Christmas series. And if you want to hear more about that, go online and listen to that message. But there's one thing I want to highlight. Um, moms, how, how, how many of you had kids who had snow days this week? You guys enjoy that as much as the kids did? Probably not, huh? I mean, I think it's kind of cruel and unusual punishment to have a week of snow days right after Christmas break, right? It's like the Christmas break that never ends. And I will be honest, I've called Mary a couple times this week while I was in the office, and I was like, hey, babe, how you doing? And she's like, I want to die right now. The kids are driving me crazy. And in that moment, my selfish heart was like, I'm so glad I'm in the office right now, right? And here's what I'll say. This is true. Our kids drive us crazy. But here's the other thing that's true. Mary and I were getting ready to go away, just the two of us for a week, and Mary said goodbye to our kids this morning, and she dropped them off at the grandparents, and she's like in tears when she says goodbye because she loves them so much, and she's going to miss them. So even in our our kids, as they're growing, and they're tiring, and they're exhausting, there's nothing we wouldn't do for our children, right? And I want you to see, this is how God views us, that He adores us, that he looks at us like a good father loves his children. He's not disappointed, he's not frustrated, he's not distant, but we are God's children. And by the way, there's a ton of implications that has for us and how we relate to one another, but that's coming up later in Ephesians, and I'll let the text speak to that when it speaks to it more clearly. We aren't strangers, we aren't acquaintances, we are family. Okay, here's the fourth one. In Christ, we are one back we have been won back to God. Look at verse 6. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him we have the redemption through his blood. You see it right there in verse 7, that we have been redeemed in Christ. And this idea of redemption means that we didn't belong to Christ, but all of a sudden we have been won back that God made a move to take us out of the bondage of sin and slavery and death, and he redeemed us back to himself. So, so let me help you explain, let me help you understand what that means. Um, all right, again, moms, I need your help. Um, if you dropped your kids off at Children's Ministry, do you have the tag that, that helps redeem your children that you turn in at the end of the service? Let me see it if you have it right? I really hope you have it or you're not getting your kids back, right? This is how it works. Maybe you lost it on purpose. I don't know. But but the way it works is we take your kids, our volunteers do, and then to make sure that they're going to the right families, you've got a specific tag for your kids. You redeem it to one of our volunteers, and then they give you the corresponding kid. That's how it works for security. Well, here's what I want you to see. God, when he redeemed us, He didn't do it for free he also had to turn something in and we see it right in verse 7 what did he have to do he redeemed us through his blood that the cost of redemption it wasn't as simple and easy as a tag he turned in it cost him himself that he came he paid the debt of our sin he died our death and he redeemed us back to god when jesus christ was on the cross When he was breathing his last breath, there were a couple different things happening. First, he was the lamb that was being slain for the salvation of the world. And he was the lion who was conquering Satan's sin and death once and for all. He was winning us back to God. He was redeeming us for himself. That's why he is called both a lion and a lamb. And here's the amazing thing. It's already happened it's done. Brett, you've been redeemed by God. It's finished. The event has taken place. There is nothing that is, can, can change it. No one can go back in time and make it unhappen. It has happened once and for all, and we are settled and secure in the reality that Jesus has triumphed over sin and death in our place. We have been won back to God. Isn't that amazing? But here's what's even more amazing. We're not just won back, but we're also forgiven. It says, we've been redeemed through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this is why this is so important. You see, redemption, it's transactional. We don't really have anything to do with it. It's something that God did on our behalf. But forgiveness is deeply relational. Okay, so here's what Paul's saying. Not only have we been won back to God, but he has perfectly healed the relationship. Does that make sense? We are His, and the relationship is completely fixed. God is not angry with us. He's not upset, but we have been forgiven. And if you've been a part of our church for a time, you know that we say forgiveness has three components. I'll throw up the next slide. This is what it means to, to forgive. Um, it means that I don't bring up the offense to that person anymore. That if I forgive someone, I, I don't, next time I see them, be like, hey, Dana, remember that time you really hurt me and really upset me and that really made me feel bad? No, if I forgive them, it's done. It's not brought up. It's not talked about. It, it, it's over. Um, we don't bring it up to others, right? I, I don't try to drag someone's reputation through the mud to get back at them for sinning against me or hurting me. I, I protect their reputation. The, the offense is covered. And then the third one, which I think is probably the most difficult for us, is I don't bring up the offense to myself anymore. I don't shape people through the lens of how they've sinned against me or how they hurt me. I don't keep people in the doghouse. People don't have to go through relational purgatory with me. But the offense is covered. It is gone forever, and this is exactly what God has done to us Psalm 103 says this so as far as the east is from the west so does he remove our transgressions from us like like church look here i promise you god is not in heaven right now talking trash about you to all the angels about your failures it's not how he views us our transgressions have been removed we are both his and the relationship is restored like it doesn't mean a lot if you're married if you have that title but you and your spouse don't talk you hate each other and you don't live together anymore the title doesn't mean anything. We are both his and relationally healed in Christ. Here's the sixth thing we see is that we're enlightened. Our, our eyes are opened, our minds have been enlightened. Look at verse eight. It says, "Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight." Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He hears what this saying. He has opened our eyes to the reality of who he is, his love for us, and the gospel and what he is doing in this world. And church, if you were with us this fall, you know we just went through a huge series on a Christian worldview. And in that series, over and over again, we compared and contrasted contrast, not contrast, that's different. Um, contrast secular humanism, which is the, the worldview of our culture, with a Christian worldview. Here's what secular humanism says: I am the ultimate authority. That I know best, I should decide for myself what I can and can't do, whatever makes me happy, I should be left alone to go pursue as long as I'm not hurting other people. The Christian worldview says, no, that isn't what's best for you, actually. The best thing for you is not the freedom to do whatever you want, but it's rightly and humbly submitting yourself to the Good Shepherd. That actually our Creator knows what's best for us even more than we do, and when we follow Him, there is the path to joy and life and vitality. And church, listen to me. I am convinced you only get to ascribe to the Christian worldview if God has done a supernatural work in your heart, in your mind, in your eyes, to see Christ clearly. Like, if you tell someone who doesn't know the Lord, hey, you really need to submit yourself to God's Word and to what Jesus says, they're like, why? Why would I ever do that? Why would I concede any authority in my life? It's a supernatural work of God to say, no, 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 I understand that when I pursue my own things, it ends in destruction." but that God loves me, he cares for me, and he has given me a good shepherd who's going to lead me to green pastures and still waters. So, so church, here's what I'm trying to get at here, very, very practically. When we engage with unbelievers in our life, we don't engage with them like, oh man, I know more than you, or I'm smarter than you, or I'm better than you. None of that's true. The only difference between us and them is that God has done a supernatural work in our hearts to open our eyes to the reality of God's love and the beauty of the gospel. So here's what we do. We're exceedingly gracious and kind, and we pray like crazy that God enlightens more hearts. Amen? We've been enlightened in Christ. And then here's the seventh thing we see. We've been promised much. Look how he ends this section. He says this. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined, there it is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." here's what Paul's saying. He's saying we have been promised an inheritance, and this inheritance is eternal life in heaven, that we have been given access to God through the Holy Spirit, that we've been given a hope that cannot be taken away, that we have eternal security. It says we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, that we have victory, strength, power, life. All of these things are promised to us in Christ. And by the way, that is unbelievable, and there's a problem in our hearts with the reality that we're not more blown away with that. Like, how sad is it that so often we take the inheritance we have in Christ for granted, and we're not excited? But here's what I want to drive at as we get ready to wrap up. It's this. Why did God give us these things? Right? I've titled the message, the the what and the why. We've just looked at seven what's we have in Christ. This is our identity, but we need to know the answer to what's the purpose? Why would Christ give us these things? Well, if you actually look in the text, you see it three separate times. And by the way, I don't know if you picked up on this or not. Did you know that verses 3 through 14 is like the longest run on sentence in the history of the world? It's one sentence where Paul's just going hard in the paint saying, this is true about you, this is true about you, this is true about you. And he repeats three times in this passage one phrase, and he does that for a reason. Whenever Paul repeats something, we need to pay attention to it. He's giving us our purpose. Did you see it or have you missed it? Let me give you a hint. You see it first in verse 6. Then you see it again in verse 12. And then he ends this passage by closing with it in verse 14. He's saying, Listen, we have been given all of this for one singular purpose to the praise of his glory. Paul is not just telling us in this passage who we are in Christ. He's telling us why we are. He's saying God chose us. He predestined us. He loves us. He's adopted us. He's forgiven us. All so that we might live lives that bring praise to the glory of God. Okay, so this is a big deal. Like if this is our singular purpose, we need to be really clear on what that means. So let's break this phrase down. Throw up the next slide. I want you to see this. Praise, it means recognition and affirmation. When you praise something, what you're saying is, is man, I see that this is true about you. I'm recognizing it and I, I, I affirm it. I love it. Like when I see Randy's cool white shoes there, it's like, man, I see your shoes. I think they're awesome. I'm praising them. Recognition and affirmation. So what are we af- recognizing and affirming in God? We're affirming his glory. And that word is actually the Greek word doxa, which is honor, splendor, and power, and majesty. So what Paul's saying is is our purpose is that we would live lives that would recognize and affirm the power, majesty, and splendor of God. That our lives would be microphones amplifying how awesome God is. That's why we have been given these things. They're not just ours to put away in a safe and to turn in someday when we're dead. He's saying, I've given you all of this so that you would live out your created purpose. Our identity is not detached from our purpose. And by the way, this has massive implications. And as we get ready to close, I want to talk about three of them. Here's the first implication of this purpose there are no wasted days. You and I don't have any wasted days. Do you know that? Like, here's what I want you to do. Can, can you help me with something? Just picture in your head what tomorrow looks like for you. What's on the agenda? What's your schedule? What's your plan? Can you do that? If you have it, say, I have it. Okay, you know that tomorrow is an opportunity to bring praise to the glory of Jesus? That it's not a wasted day? And whether that is on your commute, engaging with coworkers, parenting your children, engaging with your spouse in what you think about, in what you set your mind to, in how you talk about yourself to others, you have the ability to make much of Jesus Christ tomorrow. You do. That's your purpose, that that in how we work and, and in our integrity and in our work ethic, we can work in a way that brings praise to the glory of God, or we can waste the opportunity and make it all about ourselves. We have a choice we can live in and lean into our purpose which is why we've been given all of this or we can miss the opportunity which leads to my second implication it's this it's that the disconnect in our hearts has an explanation and i want to press in on this in a moment because i think this is so true for so many of us like can we be honest in church for a moment how many of us have gone through seasons where it's like i know i'm a believer in christ but I'm just in a really, really dry season and God feels really far away from me right now. How many of you have been there? Raise your hands up high. Okay, so all of us have gone through seasons like this. Can I help maybe explain why we feel that sometimes? Throw up the next slide. This is a picture of my son Bo. And uh Bo. Uh, just made his first travel soccer team this last fall. And as you can see from the smile, um, he's very, very excited about playing soccer. He loves it to death. And when he made the team, something happened. Um, He was given a ton of stuff. He got a home jersey. He got an away jersey he got soccer shorts he got soccer socks he got shin guards he got a ball he got a water bottle he got a sweatsuit top and a sweatsuit bottom and and he got a bag to carry all of his stuff in like when he made this team he was given a ton of gear now can i ask you a question what if bo decided hey i'm not going to play for this team i don't want to go to practice i don't want to be a part of the team but then he would show up to school and he's wearing the jersey and the sweatsuit and all of the gear. There'd be a disconnect there, right? It's like, why are you wearing all of the stuff when you're not actually part of the team? Like, what is happening in, in, in your life? There's a disconnect. You see what I'm driving at here? I think so often we live life this way, where we go through long seasons where, if we were honest, we're not living to glorify the Lord, right? Maybe there's unrepentant sin we're just choosing not to deal with. Maybe it's just simply we're viewing others not as an opportunity to love and show Christ to, but as a vehicle to get what I want. Maybe it's just being very, very selfish in our time and our attitudes and our energy. But if we were honest, there's been seasons where it's like, no, I'm going to do my own thing for a while. Right, and and so it's like we've been given this identity, we have the jersey, we have all of the clothes, but we're not playing on the team, and then we wonder why there's a disconnect in our hearts. So church, can I just like humbly ask you this? If you're here right now and you're in one of those seasons, it doesn't mean that God's out on you, it doesn't mean that he doesn't forgive you or doesn't love you or isn't just as engaged in your life. What I would ask you to do is just humbly acknowledge that to God, repent of it, start acting in a way where your life is dedicated to bringing glory to God and watch how the feelings follow your actions like it's it's most of the time in my life when I feel that there's something wrong in my heart and and there's an area in the heart in my heart where I'm not glorifying the Lord and I've got to deal with that and and that solves that issue then here's the last one it's this Um, there's a decision to make today This is the the last implication of our purpose there's a decision to make today and here's what i would like you to do right now um just close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment i want to close very very reflectively and and i want you to take a moment and really engage with your own heart here's why i say there's a decision to make today because one of the things we know about our walk with christ is it's never ending right paul says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another this idea that we are created to make much of Jesus to the praise of His glory, that's something that we grow in over time through the process of sanctification. So the way that works is, is that we grow and then the Spirit reveals more areas in our life that we need to submit to Him and then we grow and then the Lord by His goodness does that again and we continue to grow. So here's my question for you this morning as we leave. What is that next step? that you need to take in your walk with the Lord that would allow you to live out your created purpose to bring praise to the glory of God? Maybe here's a better way to phrase it. What is the next yes you need to say to God? Right, there's always a next yes. And one of the things we wanna be as a church is we wanna be at a church who helps one another take that next step say that next yes to God. I'm going to be super transparent. I I preached this sermon on, uh, last night. Then I went home and we had small group together, and uh, we were talking about this idea, talking about this passage, and the guys in our small group committed that the next yes we need to say to God together is we need to hold each other accountable and spend time praying with our spouses. That that had been something for a lot of the guys that had kind of, um, drifted away over the past years, and they're like, you know what? No, I want to glorify the Lord and how I pray with my wife. So we're holding each other accountable and, and seeking the Lord, saying yes to God And that. And here's what I would encourage you. When the Holy Spirit lays something on your heart right now, share it in small group this week. I want part of our small group time together to be like, what is that next step? How can we really pursue intentionally bringing more glory to God in our lives? dear heavenly father i thank you for your word i thank you for this time i thank you for this church and god i am so overwhelmed when i read that list of all that you've done for us god may we never become arrogant or hard-hearted or believe that there is anything in us that deserves it may we have hearts that reflect your glory and the glory onto you that you are good, that you have loved us, that you have chosen us, that you have saved us, that you have adopted us, that you have opened our eyes to a truth that we were blind to. Thank you for that. May we live lives of love and sacrifice and adoration to the praise of your glory. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.